Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show includes portions of a recent webinar about Maine's shellfish populations and changes happening on our mudflats. Since the webinar was recorded on March 18th, 2021, we will not be taking any calls today. Welcome, everyone. This is Shellfish Focus Day event number two, What's Changing on the Mudflats? This is the second in a three-part series of events to highlight Maine's shellfish populations and their industries. The series is being sponsored by the Maine Fishermen's Forum as part of the suite of programs that the forum is offering this year in lieu of the annual in-person event that we would normally have attended together a couple weeks ago in Rockland. But as we all know, that was canceled due to the global pandemic. Um, So as many of you know, the full Thursday event at the Maine Fishermen's Forum is usually dedicated to sharing information and research updates Um, restoration successes, and a lot more related to Maine shellfish. So this webinar series is an attempt to keep the information flowing because pandemic or not, there's a lot going on in the world of shellfish. Um, Just by reminder, the first topic in the series from last month covered shellfish harvesting for the future, and it included efforts to restore clam flats in various areas of the coast. And the third topic in the series, which will air in April, Um, that will explore shellfish markets and the seafood supply chain. Um, For information about all these events, especially the upcoming ones, we recommend that you follow the Maine Fishermen's Forum Facebook page um, as they're doing a great job of staying up to date on all of these and other Fishermen Forum events that are um, slated to occur this winter and spring in 2021. So today, let's get on with today. Um, Today we're talking about what's changing on the mudflats. And I am excited for the observations and the knowledge that all of our panelists will bring to the table about changes they are observing in shellfish populations and habitats and how and why they're monitoring these changes. In terms of logistics, we'll start first with a panel of harvesters whose knowledge is grounded in being out there all the time. Um, And then we'll segue to a panel of researchers who will bring us up to speed on a variety of mudflat monitoring projects and recent methods to collect data about shellfish. And we'll make sure to leave lots of time for Q&A and conversation between and after the two panels. Um, So before we introduce our guests, we wanted to provide some context on why we care about mudflats and the importance of collecting both researcher and harvester knowledge. So to help with that context, I wanted to invite Anne Hayden to share some thoughts. 
Many of you know Anne. She is the fisheries program manager at Manomet and has been involved in shellfish issues for a long time. So she can help us frame the conversation today. So Anne, it's all yours. Thanks a lot, Natalie. Excited to be here um, and really looking forward to the program. So Maine's shellfish flats are very dynamic places, changing with the seasons, storms, and the tides. They're also affected by what happens in the watershed. Runoff can carry excess nutrients, contaminants, or bacteria. And both erosion and shoreline hardening affects the flats. Obviously, harvesting also affects the flats. But the biggest human-caused impact on them may be climate change. As we have all heard, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the rest of the world's oceans. And because the marine environment is so dynamic, changing all the time, the impacts of climate change are felt more quickly on the water than on the land. And some impacts are pretty clear. The explosion of green crabs due to warming waters has done a number on clams up and down the coast. Other impacts are less obvious. Quahogs seem to be doing better, at least in the southwestern part of the state. Is it due to a natural cycle of ups and downs? Do they thrive in warmer waters? Are they less vulnerable to predators because they have thick shells that close tightly? Will they expand to eastern Maine? So many questions. To discuss what's happening on the flats and what we might do to track these changes, we've asked harvesters and researchers to share their observations. Harvesters collect information every time they're out on the flats. And they use it when deciding when, where, or if to harvest and to identify trends. And the harvesters on our panel today, are they all serve on their town's shellfish committee. Maine's intertidal shell fisheries are managed at the municipal level. And they put their knowledge to use in managing the town's shellfish program. Our researchers have conducted studies on clams, their predators, and harvester knowledge. Each is developing new approaches to understanding the changes happening on our flats. And we're so grateful that each panelist has agreed to share some thoughts today and excited to see what questions their collective understanding, their observations inspire from you, the audience. Back to you, Natalie. Thank you, Anne. Uh, that was really helpful to, to sort of ground us in what we're about to do for the next hour and a half or two. Um, so with that, um, I wanted to welcome our first panel um, onto our webinar. So we have Nate Orff, who's a harvester and he is the chair of the Scarborough Shellfish Conservation Commission. Hi, Nate. Hi, Natalie. How's it going? I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It's great to have you, Nate. Um, and then we're kind of working our way up the coast, by the way, from south to north. So uh, moving up the coast, we'll also hear from Kevin Oliver, who's a harvester and a member of the Yarmish, Yarmouth Shellfish Conservation Commission. Hi, Kevin. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Great. Good to have you. Um, and then we'll have Joni McDonald, who's a harvester and is a Shellfish Advisory Council member, and she's from George's River. Hi, Joni. Hello, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. And then of our harvester panel, last but not least, we have Bailey Bowden, who's a harvester and chair of the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee. Hi, Bailey. Hi, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. 
great, thanks. Um, so um, we're just gonna go ahead and get started. And what we're gonna ask these four panelists to do, and we'll go in the same order that we just did with introductions, is we'll ask you guys to share a little bit about what the species are that you harvest um, or that are harvested in your town by your shelf fellow shellfish harvesters. And what are some of the changes that you're seeing in your mudflats and from your shellfish? Um, and sort of what are the things that you're really sort of paying attention to that's caught your attention um, and that you're thinking about right now related to the flats in your communities? And we'll give, give each of these folks uh, a few minutes to kind of share their story so we can get to know what they're observing. And um, let's go ahead and start with Nate Orff the, from Scarborough. Hi. So Scarborough is a uh, really unique estuary in the way that the whole entire estuary, the only harvestable area in Scarborough, kind of all comes from the one river that comes out, Scarborough River. The Scarborough River is only 100 yards wide at low tide, and it feeds a massive estuary that has three separate rivers that you know are the most frequently clammed areas in the town. Um, the only real commercial clamming we have is digging steamer clams, soft shell clams. There is no uh, commercial harvestable quahog population in the town right now, which a lot of our harvesters think that's going to change as there has been a slight uptick in the amount of quahog seed and uh, juveniles being found in the past few years. Um, there's three different aquaculture operations all growing oysters in the town and there has not been any more aquaculture operations coming in because of the endangered bird habitat being located in the estuary. So the focus of our shellfish conservation commission is strictly soft shell clam management. Um, we don't have any other species that we really need to manage. Um, we have a lot of sandy bottom and a lot of mud bottom and a lot of our areas get very high currents because of the water traveling in and out of such a narrow uh, channel to get into our flats. Um, We've been studying the different effects of predation. We have a very high population of milky ribbon worms in certain areas. We have a lot of green crabs um, and we've been looking for ways to mitigate that and deal with that. Um, the past few years have been very bountiful years for the town of Scarborough. There's been a lot of clams around. A lot of the diggers think it's the best that's uh, been in the recent history. Um, same with the you know, high price that has been demanded for soft shell clams recently. But uh, yeah, that's about what's happening in Scarborough right now on the clam flats. That's great. Thank you, Nate. Um, that's, a, that's a really great overview to help us kind of picture what's happening down there. So um, next we're going to hear from Kevin Oliver from Yarmouth. Um, give us a sense, Kevin, of what you're observing on the flats and sort of what are the key species that are being harvested and what your town is up to. Well, good afternoon again, everybody. My name is Kevin Oliver. I'm on the Yarmouth, North Yarmouth Shellfish Commission for over 15 years. I've been harvesting clams, just soft shelled clams for over 20. Um, you know, we've seen a number of changes over the years. Some of the sedentary changes we've noticed, um, some of the coves silting up, um, um, some of the coves being wiped away, the silt being taken right off the top and uh, wind up with a hard pack. Um, you know, we have two rivers that kind of dump into our bay, 
adding some some fresh water. Um, those rivers have notoriously been good for clam harvesting. One of them is a prohibited area. We've experienced a very, very significant amount of what's called depuration harvesting of polluted areas over the past 15 years. And a lot of people have suspected that that's partially led to the depletion of the resource in our town. Historically, we've found that, you know, clams would go way out, you know, hundreds of yards out to the channels and areas. And now we're finding just these thin belts of clams along the shoreline and in intermittent patterns. Um, it's been it's been pretty alarming, and I'm very concerned about the future of uh, soft shell clam harvesting in our town. Um, we'd like to start focusing more over the years um, to try to stop the predation. Like most towns, we had a very significant uptick in green crab populations and predation um, starting about 10 years ago or so. Um, one of the things that is important that I'm really glad to have harvesters on here today to be able to talk to people is because we're the front line. We're the ones that see this the most. Um, for years, we'd complained about the green crab invasion and stuff. And you, you go to local shellfish meetings and local town council meetings, and you get up and you address the, the situation. But it takes a long time for administrators to start to dig in, um, you know, and find out two years later, and I don't know how much money later they decide, yes, we do have a green crab problem. So, you know, it's it's important for the harvesters to come forward and, and to have these discussions with the, the townspeople and the people making the rules. Thank you, Kevin. Um, can I ask you a follow-up question? Could you define for folks what depuration harvesting means? Depuration harvesting is done through a corporation or a company that comes in and they dig in a polluted or conditionally uh, prohibited areas. Um, most of these areas are restricted for harvesting for, for wild clam harvesters. And these clams go to a plant where they are cleaned and inspected and deemed safe for human consumption. So in one way, it's a great way to take advantage of some of these resources. Um, but these, these river shed areas um, are responsible for a significant amount of seed going out into the water supply, I suspect. So there's, you know, like most things, it's a double-edged sword. Thank you. Um, okay, we're going to bump up the coast a little bit to George's River and um, hear some, some thoughts and observations from Joni McDonald. Hi, Joni. Well, hello. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Joni McDonald. And first, I'd like to thank all of you that made this possible for us to be able to come on here and share our concerns. And uh, I love getting the community involved. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, like I said, my name is Joni and I dig as a digger on the St. George River. I'm on the shellfish committee, like you said, <clears throat> in the shack, excuse me. Um, our digging area consists of five towns. We have Thomaston, South Thomaston, St. George, Cushing, and Warren. Um, we dig soft shelf clams and most of our digging is done on the St. George. A lot of us that dig on the river are pickers and what this means is it's very soft mud and we stick our hand in the mud 
and pull the clam out and then put it in a hod. <clears throat> we don't need to use a fork to pull the mud over. It's easier on our body too. <laughs> um, I've been digging these areas for 20 years and I've seen many changes in that time frame. I've seen good clamming years and some not so good, but I have never seen it as bad as it's been the last six or so years. Uh, we watched our clams and mussel beds just disappear in a matter of months. They just went. Those of us that made our living from clamming had to seek other areas and oftentimes just head out to islands to dig because the clams would just, it, you couldn't make a living on the river anymore. We tried reseeding, but uh, it seemed to not work anymore <clears throat> because we have always done this. Uh, but we're assuming the green crabs were eating it up. So we tried covering the planted seed with um, nets like they often have done in other towns. But um, the silt was so heavy from us having such soft mud that it would cover over the nets. And uh, we think it was smothering the clams that we had planted. So that didn't work for us. <clears throat> uh, some other problems we had were the ribbon worms on top of the green crabs, just like the other communities. And um, we also have a fish. I can't think of the name of the fish. Maybe some of the other diggers will know when they come on. Um, but it actually likes clams, it has a long nose and it would actually dig, you can see the holes where the fish would actually dig in eating the clams. So <laughs> a lot of problems on the St. George. Uh, let's see, some people think that a blight came through because um, they disappeared so quickly that maybe something made them all sick. Cause like I said, the mussels disappeared also. We had tremendous muscle beds. Of course it could have been just all part of um, all of it in a perfect storm. And we can't, of course, don't forget the climate change, of course, like um, I can't remember her name, she, like she mentioned. Um, that seems to have really accelerated. And um, the last shellfish Zoom you had, had uh, one of the gentlemen on there had mentioned that um, it accelerated to such a pace that probably the clams couldn't keep up with the changing. Um, they probably could have adapted, but it was just so quickly they couldn't. And that made a lot of sense to me because I'm seeing clams come back now. So I'm assuming they're adapting to what's changing. <clears throat> um, on our river, we used to sell 140 commercial licenses, which is a lot, I, I believe, um, with a waiting list for people dying to get a license. But with the decline of the product, went a lot of the diggers, of course, having to find employment elsewhere. We have cut 20 licenses. It could we could cut more, but we have not. We don't. We decided not to, um, because um, we didn't have the sales. They weren't selling, and they the river couldn't sustain them, anyways. But there is hope. <laughs> the river has a few areas that are coming back. It's a bit spotty, but hopefully in time the areas will fill in. The clams are closer to the shore than normal, and I like that last guy just said um, they don't seem to be going out towards the river anymore. They just, they're staying close in and hopefully in time that'll fill in and go out, I, I hope. Um, I've also noticed that the water, the tides don't go out as far and if they do, they're very short lived and it comes in a lot quicker than it ever did before. <clears throat> Some of our coves were having a problem with brown and green algae growing on them and there's no clams. It's like that's smothering the clams also. So with the help of our area biologist and Hannah, and some extra water quality testing, we found that the algae could be from fertilizers, actually people fertilizing their lawns, 
and uh, washing down after a rain into the water. So through the water testing, we have found a problem with dog waste also up and down the whole coast of our towns. So these are our goals for this year, uh, to educate the public about the two major concerns that we have found out about, the fertilizers and the dog waste. Uh, number two, we're gonna to try to get more youth involved in digging. It seems like our population of diggers are, are aging and we ha haven't got many new ones coming in. So uh, we're giving out free, five free licenses to our students to be able to try it out. The first timers that haven't had a license before. <clears throat> also, we have a science project going on that has been delayed because of COVID of last year. And uh, we're in hopes to find out that, uh, analyze the flow of our river to know where, if we do replant some seed, where we would do that. Uh, I know they did it in Waldeboro. I'm not sure the, the results there though. <clears throat> uh, also, we plan on continuing uh, shoreline cleanups, which uh, we have several of them a year. And we always haul off at least a pickup truckload of trash out of each event. So uh, I have to say we have a very good group of committee members and they're made up of the diggers and the community as well. And they come, they bring good ideas and, and manpower when needed. And um, our, our committee leader, which is uh, David Taylor, he goes above and beyond for our river. He, he just really has a passion for the program and he even misses work and everything to take care of things, but he's really good. So I wanna thank you all for listening to me and uh, have a great day. If you're just tuning in, that was Joni McDonald from George's River. She's a shellfish harvester and a member of the Shellfish Advisory Council. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. Today's show features portions of a recent webinar hosted by the Maine Fishermen's Forum. It's part two of a three-part shellfish-focused series that we're highlighting on Coastal Conversations through April. Today, we're hearing from harvesters and researchers about changes they are seeing on the mudflats. Please note, we're not taking any calls today. So continuing to move up the coast, um, our, our final harvester for today is Bailey Bowden, who is from Penobscot. Bailey, welcome aboard. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start by saying where Penobscot is. Most people are wondering that. We are the first town east of the Penobscot River, and we are on our own river system known as the Bagaduce River. Our main uh, shellfish harvesting area, our main harvest is um, soft shells. And we are pretty much a complete estuary up here. And at the head of the river, we have an 800 acre tidal flat that is composed of really, really fine silty mud that at one time was as much as 18 inches deep up to your knees. If you lingered, you were going to sink. And in the last year, we've noticed that that's no longer the case. Our flats are now rock hard almost everywhere. Uh, that will be our project for this summer seeing if if the mud has migrated from the south to the the west from the west to the easterly side of the bay because that's the way the wind predominantly blows here um 
I've been looking at this bay for over 50 years. And in the last 15 years, there are rocks appearing that have never been there. So my question has been, you know, where are these rocks coming from? Are they, we've always thought maybe somehow they're rising, but now we're beginning to wonder if the mud hasn't been receding and the rocks were at the same level. Um, the problem there is the, the bottom layer is just like concrete. And we're really afraid that clams are not going to be able to burrow in if we had any clams left. So I'll circle back to that. In 2012, we were ground zero for the green crab invasion. Prior to that, our harvests were around 150,000 pounds a year. And in 2013, after the green crabs came, our landings dropped to 60,000 and the following year to 10,000, and the following year to zero. And I doubt we land more than 200 pounds of clams here in the summer now. All orders, anyone that goes clamming is just taking an order for their neighbor, basically, and doing a favor and uh, getting some clams you know, for their friends. Most everyone has taken another job um, there is one guy that was fortunate enough to get an out-of-town license in another town, so he's able to continue, you know, his passion in that town, but as, as far as Penobscot goes, it's uh, really not looking good. We have tried everything the state has recommended since 2008 when we started, and that was with brushing programs, roughing the flats. Um, you name it, we've tried it. We have probably had the most experimental or special licenses granted by DMR of any shellfish committee in the state. We've thought outside the box for five or six years on how to combat green crabs, how to bring our shellfish back. We've worked with Dr. Brian Beal on ways to do that. I mean, we've we even went to a closed area in a neighboring town and took out their large breeders, the five and six inch clams out of a prohibited area, right at the end of a wastewater treatment facility and brought them back into our town and put them in a prohibited area at the end of a OBD overboard discharge. And we hope that those huge clams might help reseed or repopulate the flats. And that really didn't seem to have any effect and we've, we've just come to the conclusion that there are just so many green crabs that the clams can't produce fast enough to outpace predation. And it's, it's not just the green crabs. We also have a lot of anamorpha, which is that green algae stuff that's on top of the flats. Um, an interesting note this year in the spring with the drought we didn't have hardly any of the endomorpha on the flats. But when September came and we finally got some rain, that stuff exploded everywhere and covered 800 acres of flats with this green stuff. And what that does is it prevents the juvenile clam from actually settling in the mud. So it is settled inside this mat, kind of a picture of Brillo pad, I guess, if you're not familiar what this stuff looks like. So the, the 
clam, the seed clam is suspended. And that's just open prey for any seagull, duck, bird, uh, raccoon, anything that wants to come along. It doesn't even have to pick it out of the mud. It's sitting right on the top and it's a white speck in a green mat. It shows up, you know, from a long ways away. And we really don't know what we're going to do here. We're unfortunately really thinking about giving up on Northern Bay, especially with the loss of the, the soft mud and having to start concentrating on some of the areas in town that have uh, more of a gravel-based bottom and moving our shellfish eff efforts elsewhere. But the, the sad issue there is we don't have a lot of shorefront going down the sides of the river at low tide, whereas we have this great 800-acre bowl, which could fit a lot of harvesters up here. So it's we don't have a lot of real estate once we run out of this this big bay. And I guess I will leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Bailey. <clears throat> um, and thanks to all four of you. This is this is incredibly interesting. And I, I would love to ask you guys, the four of you, um, sort of what are you hearing from each other that you're like, oh, that's happening to me too. I mean, you, uh, there's a few things you've, several of you have said related to predation, to um, algae getting in the way, um, to sort of the mud, the changing nature of the mud. Um, what, what, are you, what are you hearing from each other that really resonates or makes you realize that, you know, oh, there, that's happening over there too? What, are, what were some surprises or confirmation that you heard from each other? So one thing that we're getting that I guess is pretty similar to that is the, that algae. Um, a couple of years ago, there's one other river in Scarborough, the Spurwink River. A couple of years ago, there was a seed set over there, which in my nine years of commercial clamming, um, I've never dug in the Spurwink and no one ever does. And there was a seed set, there was a lot of clams. We went in there and we did really good for a few days. And we came back like two months later and the entire area was covered with like an inch thick layer of that slimy green algae moss, whatever it is. And, uh, it was gone. Everything was smothered. All the life was gone. And uh, it was interesting. There wasn't much other, you know, like not a lot of snails around. It didn't seem not a lot of crabs, just algae everywhere from bank to bank. Interesting. Thanks, Nate. Anyone else? Kevin or Joni or Bailey? You know, we, we've, we've, um, we've seen a number of things take place. You know, we, we used to have clams that go out farther. Um, and it's hard to figure out exactly what variable is causing it. We'd have large quantities of seed clams out on the edges along the channels, and we would have, um, you know, wormers come in and flip that over like three, four times in a week. Um, we've had a small explosion of those ribbon worms that have been chewing up a lot of stuff. You know, it, it, it's very hard to document and track why these things are taking place, you know, the exact cause. And I, and I think it's just the aggregate of all these things combined that are, that are leading to a depletion in our town. Yeah. Let's go to Joni and then Bailey. I was going to say about um, Bailey and the mudflats being so hard. Uh, we had the same problem. They all, they just were very hard. And we just assumed it was because of the muscle beds leaving or we didn't know because it used to block things in. So we just all started, took to hoe digging, 
with our forks instead of picking with our hands. <laughs> and I think that helps soften it up again. And uh, now we're back to picking a lot of the areas. Yeah, I actually um, left some sticks out in the, the mud. They were left over from the Beal box study. You know, we broke the sticks off and they were still there. So I've been able to use them as a little bit of a gauge as to what's happening with the mud level and the, the water level on top of the mud because it is really silty. And I began noticing this three years ago that, you know, one time there'd be an inch of that stick sticking out of the mud. And if we had a good storm that blew southwest, there could be 10 or 12 inches of that stick sticking out of the mud. So it became apparent to me that that mud is moving. And what is that going to do to the juveniles that are trying to settle in that mud? Do they become buried too deeply so their siphon doesn't reach the surface and they can do their thing? You know, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. Um, one thing I did, would like to mention about with the depuration digging is before we had our big crash in 2012, Depuration was up here digging 150 to 250,000 pounds in a month in July with 30 harvesters every day. So we don't know how many clams were left that didn't get picked up and were left for the seagulls or died in the mud. But I'm sure that that level of intense harvest had to have some sort of negative effect on the standing crop. And then when you add the green crabs came in to boot, that was just, a, you know, another nail in the coffin. Thanks, everyone. I think we will move on to our researcher panel um, and encourage the harvesters to, to think of questions that you're going to want to ask of the researchers. This is just like looking at the all the windows that I'm seeing here. There is a collected knowledge across the research and the shellfish community that is just really exciting. So I'm looking forward to, to continuing this conversation once we've heard some basics of what our researchers are up to. So our research panel is made up of Sarah Randall from the Down East Institute. Hi, Sarah. Good afternoon, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, and then, uh, hi, Dennis. We've got Dennis Mark Nault from the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Hello, thanks for having me. Great, thanks for coming, Dennis. Um, we have Marissa McMahon from Manomet. Hi, Marissa. Hi, thanks, Natalie. I'm excited to continue hearing all this great information. Great. And um, we also have Sarah Risley from the University of Maine Darling Center. How, hi, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks. And I just wanted to acknowledge that Marissa and Sarah have also been pretty instrumental in helping Anne put this panel together. So thanks to putting this whole webinar together, not just this panel, but the whole shebang. So thanks to, to all of you. Um, so welcome aboard to our researchers. And um, let's go ahead and start with Sarah Randall from the Down East Institute. Um, if you could share a little bit about what you're up to these days and why. Um, and also, I know that um, at least I think a couple people mentioned veal boxes. So at some point, it would be great to have you explain what a veal box is. 
Definitely. So, um, yeah, I've been working, conducting research um, in the intertidal since um, right after what has now become known as the ocean heat wave of 2012, um, where we experienced really high ocean temperatures. Although in general, our ocean temperatures, in, especially in Maine, have been um, increasing over the past 40 years as an impact of climate change. Um, this ocean heat wave time period was a time when clamors were observing um, larger amounts of green crabs on the flats, so much to the um, effect of at the end of a tide, they would uh, be attacking the clams that the clamors had just dug. So um, that's when I began doing this research. And um, ever since then, I've been working on trying to um, figure out ways to protect clams from predators and to learn more about what's happening in the intertidal ecosystem. And yes, um, one of the tools that we use pretty in you know, my opinion, like the most exciting, you know, tool is these beal boxes, which we sometimes also call recruitment boxes. And they're very simple. They're a wooden frame that has a a uh, mesh on the top and the bottom. And it's a small mesh, but clams, when they settle out of the water column, are um, smaller than the mesh. So the clams, when they settle out, are one fifth of a millimeter. And they can fit inside the mesh, inside the box. And so when we put these out on the flats, um, the clams that actually settle into the box can survive um, because they're protected from most predators. And the clams inside them can grow. And from these boxes, we can learn so much. Um, we can learn about what species are settling to the mudflats and, um, you know, how many and what their growth rates are. And then also when we sample the mud adjacent to the boxes, we can learn about how many uh, clams of the clams that um, recruited or settled onto that mudflat are surviving. And we use these beal boxes, um, we put them out in May before the clams start to um, spawn, and we leave them on to the mudflats until November, which is when the um, clams tend to stop growing because they put their effort into, um, you know, the, it's colder water, so it's, uh, they put their effort into other matters besides growing. Um, and since 2015, I've been using these beal boxes up and down the coast um, to learn more about um, the clams that are recruiting and how many. And it's really been um, a huge eye opener because basically what I see in the different towns that I'm in is that the clam, when I put the beal boxes out and I look at the, what is inside the beal boxes at the end of the year, inside those boxes are hundreds, if not thousands of clams. And in the mud beside them, I'm lucky to find uh, one or two clams that have survived. Um, so what I'm seeing um, if, is if we don't protect clams from predators, um, I, don't, I don't find clams. And unless in some areas of the high intertidal, which is the area that is exposed two to three hours before low tide. Um, and so that's what I see um, pretty much everywhere that I'm going. And in the last uh, year, 2020, we established um, softshell clam recruitment monitoring sites in nine different towns across the state from Wells. Um, we also have two sites in Scarborough with Nate um, on up to Sabayak. And in each of these towns, we have uh, two monitoring sites that we're collecting information on. Um, 
And so um, we're learning a lot and this is going to be like really important baseline data so we can sort of understand like trends in recruitment, trends in survival. Um, we also measure, uh, measure temperature so we can see the, the trends in temperature um, and maybe figure out if there's any uh, you know, there's many things we can figure out basically. Um, and we can also see what kind of species are um, recruiting to those areas. Um, so I'm happy to talk uh, about more about that. So I guess I would just say that um, the beal boxes have allowed us to understand that the areas that we're thinking of as dead mud aren't dead really because they're actually experiencing large amounts of uh, recruitment in some cases but it's just that those clams that recruit they are not surviving that critical like early first year of life um, because clams need to um, they generate they need two years um, they need at least to survive one year to reach a harvestable size in the state which is two inches so getting them through that first year of life is crucial if we want them to reach um, harvestable size which we do for folks who are just tuning in, that was Sarah Randall from the Downeast Institute sharing some of her methods for researching and understanding changes happening in our mudflats. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. Today's show is part two of a three-part shellfish-focused series we're running through April in partnership with the Maine Fishermen's Forum. This broadcast covers portions of a recent webinar, and so we won't be taking any calls today. Okay, let's go next to Dennis Nault from the Department of Marine Resources. Hi, Dennis. Hello, um, I am Dennis Nault with the Maine Department of Marine Resources. I am the supervisor of the Municipal Shellfish Management Program. Um, and that's a program that's been around for quite a long time period. Uh, I have three area biologists that cover sections of the coast uh, and the towns. So I have um, Heidi Layton, Hannah Annis, and Ari Leach. They cover their respective coasts from down east to southern Maine. It is a total of about 74 towns with ordinances and management, um, and they're kind of split evenly uh, through the area biologists. We have a, a challenging job, never mind just doing the area biologist side, um, there is what 150,000 intertidal acres in the state of Maine, of which there's about 83, 84,000 acres, intertidal acres of clam flats itself. So over a shoreline of what, 3,400 miles of shoreline, that's a challenge for three area biologists. We wouldn't be able to get what's going on without having anyone, every one of these municipalities and these shellfish committees participating in this program. Um, they are the key to the, the eyes and the ears on the flat initially. So with that, we've always been fighting from the backside. How do we look at and stay on top of things? Uh, certainly it was evident in the 2012, 2013 year with the, the green crab bomb that went off um, that you know it came up and literally bit us. So how do we start looking at in monitoring on the long-term side. Um, Bailey said it clearly too. They were unfortunate to get, first get nailed with moon snails. And then after the moon snails were eating the, their clams, the green crabs came in and ate the moon snails, which were eating the green crabs, uh, which were eating the clams also. So starting this year from some work that we've been looking at doing, we are instituting what's called um, these long-term environmental monitoring sites. We're picking 
three sites uh, or three towns across the coast, two sites in each town as a baseline to start out. These will be Machias Port, Dare Isle Stonington, and Phippsburg. So each one of the air bios will have a town, two flats in each town. We'll establish these as our long-term monitoring sites for numerous things. So not only will we be putting down some recruitment boxes um, with DEI to look at settlement on a long-term basis as opposed to short-term, we'll also be doing and conducting uh, different forms of surveys. So, you know, Kevin Oliver, Bailey, a lot of the, the um, and Joni are aware of when we conduct a, uh, a regular clam flat survey, it's intensive. It takes a lot of time, money, and effort. Uh, and you get a good amount of information out of it, but it's a snapshot for what's there. Sometimes we need to do a quicker evaluation of what's there um, for water quality changes, for depuration management plans, a whole host of things. How do we quickly do a rapid a test on a flat to say, is it worth for the state to do a time, money, and effort to for upgrade or downgrade, the, uh, upgrade the water quality in those areas? Um, is it worthwhile for us to be putting, you know, or the town to be putting efforts in these areas? So how do we look at that? So we've developed what's called a walkover survey. It's a little bit less intensive than a, a clam flat survey, but it certainly will answer questions or create questions on, do we need to do more work or a more intensive survey in these areas? We also will be looking at doing um, these walkover or timed green crab surveys in these areas. So we'll be looking at a, a time survey of, of collecting green crabs almost on a monthly basis throughout the year annually. So we'll be able to determine size, sex, color, um, numbers of, of critters within that flat over a time period every month throughout the year. The biologists will also be doing um, a general walkover survey. So we're looking at and observing what's on that flat. Are we seeing enteromorpher? Are we seeing different types of algaes on that flat at different time periods? We'll be looking at not just settlement of clams, but what about worms? What about you know a whole host of other things? With that, as we refine this tool, and these are gonna be our long-term sites, this is not short-term, we're looking at this as being a permanent um, survey and monitoring sites, environmental monitoring. We'll deal with, literally we're gonna be getting, getting uh, water temperatures uh, throughout those time periods where they're there through data loggers. Um, and then we start building a cassette. As we build this, then we can look at other municipalities doing something similar, maybe on a scaled back basis. Now we're capturing information and data of what's going on because it's a $64 million question on why clams are settling or why they're not settling. Um, yes, we can look at landings data and we say we had a, a decline after the green crab um, uh, explosion in 2013. We're seeing a little bit of a bump up and rise up in landings. It's a little bit slow to recover, but what are those issues? What's going on there? We are seeing cohogs expanding in certain Southern Maine areas. Um, is that a positive, is that a negative? That's hard to say, but we're certainly seeing a transition um, in, uh, from guys digging clams to digging cohogs in uh, certain towns in, in Southern Maine. So by us creating these long-term monitoring sites and looking at a different means for monitoring what's going on on those flats, hopefully we don't get uh, these issues with um, moon snails or green crabs or other things. We can at least get a heads up of what's going on with better powers of observation on our side and work with the municipalities to tail make them because every town is completely different. What's happening on in Yarmouth is gonna be very much different than what's going on in, in 
uh, Penobscot or Scarborough or in the Georges River. Thank you, Dennis. Um, so that's going to be such an interesting project to see how it changes over the course of the coming years um, and what you're finding. So let's go next to um, Marissa McMahon from Manomet. Let's hear about what you guys are up to. Great. Thanks, Natalie. Um, so yeah, my name is Marissa McMahon. I'm the director of the fisheries division at Manomet. I'm also a member of the Shellfish Advisory Council, or what we call SHAC, um, along with Joni, who's also a member. This is a committee that makes recommendations to the Department of Marine Resources and the Legislative Marine Resource Committee. Uh, but with my Manomet hat on, um, we work on a wide range of topics from ecosystem restoration to fisheries diversification, really all in an effort to support resilient and productive ecosystems and communities. So along those lines, we work closely with shellfish harvesters and municipal shellfish management committees. And one of the things that we're specifically working on right now is developing an ecological survey for the mudflats that potentially can be a tool for harvesters um, and municipal managers to use. And we're doing this because we've heard directly from harvesters that there's a need for a standardized survey methodology for collecting data that can be used for municipal management um, that includes collecting information on commercially important species or shellfish species like softshell clams and quahogs, but also predators such as milky ribbonworms and green crabs, as well as other commercially important species that overlap in habitat like bloodworms and sandworms. Um, so really getting a sense of the whole ecosystem. Uh, ultimately, we want this survey to be comparable and or compatible with other surveys that are occurring. So um, we've been doing a lot of um, communicating with Dennis and uh, Sarah and others who are doing this type of work. Um, so for instance, we want to be able to compare shellfish abundance collected in this survey we're developing to the data that the Department of Marine Resources is collecting in their clam surveys. We also want to be able to utilize this survey in combination with other efforts like the Down East Institute's recruitment box surveys that Sarah was just talking about, um, which would really allow us to get an understanding of the whole picture from clam settlement to the harvestable stock to the predators influencing the system. Um, we also want the final product to be something that is adjustable to accommodate whatever capacity exists and or whatever questions exist from place to place. So for instance, maybe in southern Maine, getting a handle on quahog abundance is really important, but that's less important in eastern Maine, where there's a different set of priorities and questions. Um, and in terms of capacity, we realized that conducting a comprehensive survey of all of these species is really time consuming. So we ultimately want to be designing something that can be flexible and suit the capacity of whoever is conducting it. With that said, we're still in the early phase of developing this survey. And we're really at the stage of talking with harvesters and managers and other researchers to get feedback and input on the design. Um, we aim to have sort of a first draft to test out this spring and early summer and iron out um, any of the kinks that we may have before, you know, ultimately having more of a final um, product. So I just want to pause really quick for a minute, though, and acknowledge that harvesters know more about the flats than any survey could ever tell us. Um, like Kevin said, at one point, they are the front line. 
uh, or on the front lines. Um, they're out there every single day in a way that scientists are not. So they already know where the high and low density spots are. They know how populations change from year to year. Um, and Sarah Risley, um, who's going to be speaking next, is going to talk more about the importance of harvester knowledge. Um, but I just want to wrap up by saying that we're not looking to develop a survey that um, you know, tells harvesters what they already know. We really want feedback from harvesters and from town, fish, town shellfish managers on what sort of questions they're asking right now, what sort of data would be useful in informing their management process and what sort of tools we could develop that would be most useful. Um, so I have taken a ton of notes so far from all of the harvesters on our panel. Uh, algae has definitely um, popped up on my radar for sure. Um, and I'm eager to hear if anyone has comments or thoughts on this subject when we get to the discussion. Thank you. Great, thanks, Marissa. Um, yeah, algae, that enteromorpha, the green algae that bunches of you have talked about is um, really interesting. Uh, so we have one more researcher to hear. Let's go to Sarah from the University of Maine Darling Marine Center. Sarah, what are you guys up to? Hi everyone. Um, so my name is Sarah Risley and I'm a marine, marine biology and marine policy student with the University of Maine Darling Marine Center um, based here in Walpole, Maine. And today I'm going to share a little bit about um, a local knowledge mapping study our team created to help understand shellfish populations and human use in two main uh, river estuaries. And so um, since 2019, uh, graduate and undergraduate students based at the Darling Marine Center or the DMC have led efforts to collect information on the area's shellfish populations in partnership with the Demerscotta Newcastle Joint Shellfish Committee. And this project also expanded in 2020 to include the town of Bremen on the Madomic River. Um, and although we initially planned this past summer to move forward with traditional shellfish population surveys um, that Dennis mentioned, sort of those labor intensive on the flats, um, COVID-19 and the safety restrictions that came with that put our field work on hold for the season. And so in an effort to still collect information about the rivers for the towns, we developed a by mail mapping study to document what harvesters are seeing on the flats. And the hope here was that this information could help us identify areas that are important to the shellfish industry or had changed in some way, um, either say by like the number of soft shell clams or the type of shellfish species and um, just document these changes. And we also hope to be able to share information with the towns about some of the challenges harvesters are experiencing and just the general status of the shellfish resource. And so to do this study, um, we first called license holders in the towns to ask them if they'd like to help us with this research. And if they agreed, um, harvesters were then sent a map booklet in the mail. And the maps look similar to say the main atlas or gazetteer, where you had a large foldout map showing the whole river and then um, zoomed in pages showing different sections. And so then harvesters placed stickers on the map, um, pages, those zoomed in pages, to show the locations of softshell clam, quahogs, razor clams, wild oysters, and marine worms. And they could also write in notes about things they've seen or just general observations about the flats and activity on the river. And once they finished the maps, um, the harvesters then did a phone interview with our team um, in which we asked them questions about what changes they see, how things have changed since the start or since their start of their career or when they began actually clamming 
and what predators or other things might be affecting shellfish numbers. And so far, um, we're in the thick of kind of a net, like going through this data and uploading it and analyzing it. Um, and currently we're using it to inform site selection for a long-term monitoring education program on the Damascata River um, beginning this summer. Really sort of similar themes as we've sort of been hearing from other researchers where we're looking at the full ecosystem. So looking at shellfish species, but also their predators. Um, and we're also including, so what are people doing on the river? What's the human activity? Where is aquaculture taking place, boating, things like that. Um, and we're also hoping to compile reports for the towns to talk about the state of the shellfish fishery to kind of give them some information about that. Um, and overall, just we have learned a ton about these rivers from harvesters and plan to continue to do studies like this, where we document their local knowledge and get a glimpse into what's happening on the flats. And just overall, harvester voices are so important and their knowledge can help support a resilient shellfish industry by informing research, conservation, and planning for the future in these rivers. That last speaker was Sarah Risley from the University of Maine Darling Marine Center on our show today about Maine's mudflats and the changes that both researchers and clamors are noticing in our shellfish populations. On the webinar where each of these speakers was recorded last week, the harvester and researcher presentations were followed by another hour of conversation that we don't have enough time to cover here today. However, if there were a couple themes that everyone agreed on, it was that this kind of exchange about firsthand observations about change and that tracking the changes over time are both critical to addressing the complicated and worrisome ecological dynamics happening on our mudflats. If you want more information about the full webinar session or the three-part shellfish-focused series, please log on to the Coastal Conversations page on the Maine Sea Grant website. You can also track other Maine Fishermen's Forum events happening this spring by logging on to the Maine Fishermen's Forum Facebook page. In closing, I would like to extend a heartfelt thanks to all of our guests today, including first our harvesters, Nate Orff, harvester and chair of the Scarborough Shellfish Conservation Commission, Kevin Oliver, harvester and member of the Yarmouth Shellfish Conservation Commission, Joni McDonald, harvester and shellfish advisory council member from George's River, and Bailey Bowden, harvester and chair of the Penobscot Shellfish Conservation Committee. And then our researchers, Sarah Randall from the Downeast Institute, Dennis Nault from the Maine Department of Marine Resources, Marissa McMahon from Manomet, and Sarah Risley from the University of Maine Darling Marine Center. And finally, thanks to Anne Hayden of Manomet, who helped set the context at the top of the show. Thanks to Jessica Joyce for coordinating a million details of the series. And thanks to the Maine Fishermen's Forum for sponsoring the three-part Shellfish Focus series. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.